0: Hello everyone and welcome to Histories of the Unexpected. It's the show where we demonstrate that everything, simply everything you can think of, has its own history, like panicking, beaches and cricket bats. Now, I'm just going to say I don't often get to see these before I read them out and I really want to do the history of panicking. I think it's brilliant. (laughs) Uh,
1: And and cricket bats is all about the history of zombies, isn't it? Don't I remember that somewhere? absolutely. Um, Yes, yes, that's very true. We will, however, Be following the links in our minds as we come across them, explaining how those histories link together in unexpected ways. As always, who knew, who knew that the history of clouds is in fact all about World War One or that the history of mothers is all about Nazi Germany?
0: Mm, that's a cracker, that one. Uh, the man not sitting opposite me because we're still recording remotely, he will help pilot us through this wonderful historical world. He is one of the country's leading
1: professors of history. It's the wonderful James Daybell. Hi, James. Hello, Sam. And the man not sitting opposite me because he is in his shed, a very hot shed today, uh, way across town because we are still in COVID 19 pandemic, global lockdown. But nonetheless, he is still, he's still the famous historical adventurer dr sam willis hello sam hello everyone this
0: is another episode in our special series of homeschooling for kids i hope you've been enjoying them we've absolutely loved them each episode what we do is we take a subject that i bet you don't think has a history and we prove that it does and today we are going to prove something quite exciting it's uh, we're doing the history of temper tantrums full on rages and we are going to talk about that in relation to Henry II and the murder of Thomas Beckett. But before we get there, we're going to do some brainstorming and think about
1: how we might study temper tantrums more broadly. Oh, that's brilliant. Well, I mean, when I think about temper tantrums, um, one of the anecdotes that springs to mind is of Elizabeth I, Queen of England between 1558 and 1603, and one of the most difficult things uh, about re- studying the history of Elizabeth I is actually getting inside the character and personality of the Queen herself. However, there are records that allow us to get into the privy chamber, her inner sanctum, where she's surrounded by her maids of honour, those girls who were lucky enough to be uh, important at court and had were in close proximity to the Queen. And according to gossipy Mary, Queen of Scots, um, Elizabeth had a foul, foul temper and there's one tale about how one of her poor maids of honour upset her one day and she got so cross that she picked up a candlestick and hit the poor girl and broke her finger. So that's it. It's about monarchs losing their temper for me.
0: Yeah, and um, there are all sorts of wonderful examples of um, people in charge of other people losing their temper generally. Um, and we've come back to this quite a lot, but Napoleon's an absolute cracker, and Caesar—they had raging tempers. But it's also important, I think, to think about what type of temper, what type of anger you're actually thinking about in history. Is it an anger directed at a person, as it will be with Henry the Second and Thomas Beckett? or is it directed at a thing, at an object, at a system, at the way something has is is run? Um, there's lots of um, examples of uh, people demonstrating at the moment, uh, particularly to do with issues of race. And you can see examples of this uh, throughout history as well. And these are more very well-considered demonstrations of anger. And I think with temper tantrums, we're thinking of something which is more more hysterical, isn't it, James, than a considered
1: demonstration? Absolutely. Now, listen to the, listen to this as an example. So one of the things that I I think about is uh, when I when I study uh, history and I'm a historian who has studied the family is the way in which temper tantrums can locate themselves within family life not just children uh, but also the way in which husbands and wives behave towards each other. Now I've got here an extract from the brilliant Samuel Pepys's diary. Now he's a famous diarist probably one of those famous diarists writing in the English language and there's an extract here from 1663, when he's describing uh, a row with his wife. My wife began to speak again of the necessity of her keeping somebody to bear her company, for her familiarity with her other servants is that it spoils them all, and other company she hath none, which is too true. And called for Jane to reach her out of her trunk giving her the keys to that purpose of a bundle of papers and pulls out a paper, a copy of what a pretty while since she has written in a discontent to me, which I would not read but burned. So this is a letter that he's basically written to her. She's written to him complaining about him and she now reads it. And he says it is so piquant and wrote in English and most of it true of the retiredness of her life and how unpleasant it was that it being written in English and so in danger of being met with and read by others. I was so vexed at it and desired her and then commanded her to tear it, which she desired to be excused it. I forced it from her and tore it and withal took her other bundle of papers from her and leapt out of the bed in my shirt, clapped them into my pockets of my breeches that she might not get them from me. And having got on my stockings and breeches and gown, I pulled them out one by one and tore them all before her face, though it went against <laughs> my heart to do it. She crying and desiring me not to do it, but such was my passion and trouble to see the letters of my love to her and my will, wherein I had given her all I have in the world when I went to sea with my Lord Sandwich, to be joined with a paper of so much disgrace to me and dishonour if it should have been found by anybody, having tore them all, saving a bond from my uncle Robert's, which she hath long had in her hands, and our marriage licence, and the first letter ever I sent her when I was a servant. I took up the pieces and carried them into my chamber, and there, after many disputes with myself, whether I should burn them or no, and having picked up the pieces of the paper she read today, and of the will which I tore, I burnt all the rest, and so went out to my office, troubled in mind. Listen to that. Wow. And, and, and then, then later on, he returns back and basically is feeling really guilty about it and buys her a dress. But it's that kind of absolute <laughs> te- absolute temper tantrum. This feeling that she's, she's written this letter that's critical of him. He's scared that anyone is going to get hold of it and see what a bad guy he is. And then she reads it out to him. And it just, he just gets so annoyed. He takes the letters, rips them all up, burns them. But interestingly, preserves the important things. The will and the marriage yeah. certificate. Yeah. Ah, oh, there's a God temper. to have been in that house at that
0: moment. Oh, that's, a, that's an absolute... Terrible. So the, um, the, the, talking about the, the sort of the childish aspects of a tantrum, I remember having tantrums when I was a kid, the intense frustration of it. There is a, a very a touching story, actually, and this is the one of Helen Keller. She's an American, um, born in 1880, died in 1968. And when she was a... A, a very very young child she suffered an illness which left her deaf and blind and uh, accounts describe her rages and tantrums as she was uh, this child who'd suddenly been robbed of her sight and and of her hearing and she was damaged so young that she actually wasn't very able to speak and the intense frustration and she became very um, difficult and having regular these tantrums of frustration. But then she met um, someone called Anne Sullivan, who as an adult had become partially blind. And Anne teaches Helen how to use braille and how to communicate. And uh, Helen goes on to become the first deaf-blind person to earn a Bachelor of Arts degree. And Mm -hmm. um, she has a lifelong friendship with, with her teacher, Anne, who becomes her companion. And it is a really, really touching story. Um, and I think you guys should all go and look it up if you've got the time. But today we are going to be talking about Henry II, King of England, and Thomas Becket, and how Henry's anger came to really colour that relationship. And it didn't end well for Thomas, did it, James?
1: Now, the dispute between King Henry II of England and Thomas Becket, the Archbishop of Canterbury, is probably one of the most memorable episodes of the 12th century and Becket's murder was a terrifying and shocking event that basically left the floor of Canterbury Cathedral splattered with blood and brains and it catapulted the archbishop into sainthood and lasting historical memory. Now the connection here to temper tantrums is that it is the king's anger that has such a prominent place in almost all the accounts of the murder of Thomas Becket. Now, a little background about Becket. Before he was Archbishop of Canterbury, he was Henry II's Chancellor. So he was an important secular figure, very important office holder. And according to many sources, he was also a close friend of the king. Although many within the ecclesiastical, the religious community, Considered Becket far too secular and worldly and not spiritual enough to be an archbishop. Despite this, in 1162, Henry pushed through his election, hoping that Becket would support him in his efforts to reclaim the rights and customs over the church, which were attributed to his grandfather. Henry I. So he was trying to sort of reclaim that earlier glory and power over the church and I'll explain that later on in the last section. However, in what struck some contemporaries as a miraculous conversion, so the idea that Becket was this worldly man rather than a, a spiritual man, Beckett swiftly resigned the chancellorship and took on the position of the Archbishop of Canterbury and In so doing, at the same time, he asserted his commitment to defending the church rights against encroachment by the crown. And he resisted many of Henry's objectives and attempts to get more royal control over the church, most notably to try in secular courts clerics who had committed serious crimes and to have English bishops Confirmed the customs and liberties and privileges of the realm. Now everything came to a head in October 1164 when Henry had Becket tried for embezzlement at Northampton. He accused Becket of dipping his hands in the coffers, and the behaviour of the king and his retinue, so those supporters of the king, became increasingly threatening towards the Archbishop, who perhaps, fearing for his life, fled across the Channel into exile. Now, in June of 1170, Henry and Thomas Becket reach a cautious peace that avoided any mentions of the customs that had hitherto prevented the reconciliation between these two men. And at this point, Becket returns back to England in November of that year, but before he had even landed, he issued excommunications against the bishops who would participated in the coronation of Henry's son, a privilege traditionally reserved for the Archbishop of Canterbury himself. These excommunications were what infuriated Henry II.
0: They absolutely did. So Beckett comes back and immediately starts to wind up Henry. It's, uh, it's almost instantaneous and Henry's... I think, at the end of his tether. And it's now that, according to certain... Well, according to popular tradition, he says something, he exclaims, he says, "'Will no one rid me of this turbulent priest?' Become a very, very famous quote um, from all sorts of... used in all sorts of ways to do with um, people finding it difficult to work out power-sharing, Essentially, and, and who can, who controls what? Now, this phrase itself has a fascinating history, and if we go back to uh, a monk called Edward Grimm, he died in 1189. what a fantastic name. He was a monk in Cambridge, and he visits Canterbury Cathedral uh, on the day of Beckett's murder. He was actually there um, for the murder, and he quotes Henry. Um, uh, saying, what miserable groans and traitors have I nurtured and promoted in my household who let their lord be treated with such shameful contempt by a low-born cleric. So that's very different from this quote, will no one rid me of this turbulent priest. And then that phrase, uh, Grimm's phrase, is then changed again uh, in 1772, so many, many hundreds of years later it becomes this. He said that he was very unfortunate to have maintained so many cowardly and ungrateful men in his court, none of whom would revenge him of the injuries he sustained from one turbulent priest. And then again, it changes. This is 1821. So we are almost 700 years after the event in a book called The Chronicle of the Kings of England. This phrase becomes will none of these lazy, insignificant persons whom I maintain deliver me from this turbulent priest? So then it's becoming a bit more like that phrase we know because it's then shortened to who shall deliver me from this turbulent priest. So that very famous saying does itself have a history. And it's worth going back to think about what was actually said. What do we know about the events? What do we know about Henry's anger? Well there's a variety of different sources we can use here. There's Becket's own collected correspondence, Um, there's a book called Twelve Saints Lives written very shortly after Becket's deaths and four more chronicles written between 1188 and 1218. In fact there are 329 surviving letters that Becket actually wrote or received during his archbishopric. So there's a lot of material which we can get into and there's a lot of it describing the relationship between Becket and Henry and there are other people who get involved in this correspondence as well including uh, Louis VII, Pope Alexander III, various English bishops and members of Becket's staff. So what I want to do now is just go through some of the ways in which Henry's anger is actually described in these contemporary sources, because it's very, very important to understand. Um, it, it's described as early on as his indignation. Uh, his anger is also later described as great or particularly large. At the Council of Northampton, when Henry exiled Beckett's relatives, Uh, This anger is fury is described as being enormous, monstrous or savage. Later on, it's described as being beyond measure, which I think is a really important description because it suggests that there's a level of limited or acceptable anger, which Henry has gone beyond as a judicious ruler. He should be able to maintain control of his emotions, but he has not been able to. So his anger has gone beyond measure. There is no restraint there. For his emotions, but whether a ruler should be able to exercise restraint. Uh, another uh, chronicle at the time, William of Newburgh, he writes um, about almost Hen- Henry's frenzy, that his behaviour is disturbed, it's seething, disordered, and that his behaviour and the way he's acting is not sound, that it alters his state of being almost entirely, that it leads him to words and behaviour that he would not normally consider. So you get a sense of someone completely losing control of how they function and behave, being whipped into this frenzy by Beckett and by Beckett's behavior. One of the most interesting ones here, this is a letter which describes Henry as having flung his cap from his head, pulled off his belt and sitting as it might be on a dung heap, he started chewing pieces of straw. So again we come back to this action this behavior of someone who's becoming less than human almost animalistic. There is a fascinating contrast to this by Gerald of Wales though who describes Henry as being quite mild when he isn't so angered. Have a listen to this. When his mind was undisturbed and he was not in an angry mood he spoke with great eloquence and what was remarkable in those days He was well learned. He was also affable, flexible and facetious. And however, he smothered his inward feelings second to no one in courtesy. Withal, he was so clement a prince that when he had subdued his enemies, he was overcome himself by his pity for them. In troublesome time, no one was more courteous. And when all things were safe, no man more harsh, severe to the unruly, but clement to the humble. So once you get a sense of him being in control and and being uh, affable, flexible, all these wonderful words to describe him being clement, being controlled, you get a sense of him behaving almost like an animal when he absolutely loses it. So there you are, James. I absolutely love those descriptions of of Henry. And I think you get a, a profound sense of shock of people witnessing the king behaving like that. Anyway, once he says... Will no one rid me of this turbulent priest or whatever it was he actually says? Four nights. Hang on. Hang on, hang on.
1: This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad. And I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which
0: Four of Henry's knights, they, I think, see this almost as a summons to action and they leave directly for Canterbury. When they get to Canterbury, this is on December the 29th, 1170, they find Beckett in front of the high altar. He's just gone there to hear the Vespers, and one of the knights approaches him, calls at him, and strikes him on the shoulder with a flat of his sword, almost as if he didn't intend to kill him initially. But Becket stands firm. He stands his ground like metaphorically and literally, and it's at this point that the other knights pile in and they, well, they essentially butcher him uh, on the the floor of Canterbury Cathedral. And it is clearly recorded that they crack open his skull and his brains spill onto the cathedral floor. So that's how it all ends up. We have this enormous outburst of rage from Henry II and the knights go in and they murder Thomas Becket. So, James, why does all this
1: matter? Well, Sam, all this matters because what it's all about is a massive power struggle between the crown on one hand versus the church on the other. And this is a major conflict that we see emerging in two people, Henry II on one side and Thomas Becket on the other. And it's a conflict that's a matter of principle that becomes, as we've seen, a major crisis within the kingdom that leads to the assassination of the most powerful holy churchmen in the country. And this conflict revolved around the power of the church versus the power of the crown. And I want to just spend a little bit of time unpacking that for people because Henry II spent much of his reign systematically building up royal power in England. As king, this was something that was very important to him. But in trying to do this, what it did was it brought him up against another great organisation with English interest. In other words, the church. Now, key here is that for over a century, a series of reforming popes in Rome had worked to make the clergy independent of all laymen and women, and to make themselves, as head of the clergy, the undisputed heads of the church and all of its property. So taxation was sent back to Rome. Rome had ecclesiastical jurisdiction around Europe and certainly in England. And this ecclesiastical reform that we see coming from these reform-minded popes had the clear purpose which was the purification of the church in other words they wanted it to be independent of kings and their what they saw as their corrupt secular influence now previous generations of reformers had often relied upon royal support but in the 12th century that we're talking about reformers felt that royal control of the church led to corruption And so within the church themselves, they sought to reduce the power and influence of monarchs. In England, they had quite a bit of success during Henry I's reign and King Stephen's reign in gaining more freedom and autonomy for the English clergy and a greater role um, for them in refereeing um, ecclesiastical disputes in England. However, when Henry II comes to the throne... He sees himself as taking on the mantle of Henry I as the restorer of his good government. And when it came to the church, this meant that what he wanted to do was to roll back many of the privileges of this big interest group, this biggest interest group in the kingdom. Now, Henry thought that he had an ally in his friend Thomas Becket to allow him to do this. Also, The reforming ideology of these popes was, although quite attractive to high-ranking churchmen, it was also quite new, and many had been quite used to working with the king. This was an old tradition, and most English bishops were willing to go to some length to accommodate Henry II, wanting to restore royal influence. This was largely the normal way of behaving, but what Beckett does is he stops Henry being able to do this. And this is what leads to this conflict. But the key thing, the key impact of this, is that Beckett's death turns him from an unpopular, fairly maverick churchman into a martyr. He's no longer this stubborn politician who sees himself going up against the king, but he becomes a martyr, a myth, somebody who is righteously struck down by a tyrannical and, as we've seen, tempered king, a man with a bad temper. And you can see this in the way in which his martyrdom um, leads to all sorts of, of miracles and, and sort of powers associated with his relics. And these relics are enshrined in Canterbury, but they're also sent around Europe. Now, Henry VIII, in in 1539, with the English Reformation in full flight, orders them to be confiscated and to be destroyed. However, there survives in the Ashmolean Museum to this very day a beautiful reliquary casket of St Thomas Becket. This is, in other words, a, in very simple terms, a box beautifully decorated that would have carried his bones, in other words, the relics of this person. And if you have a look at this, go to the Ashmolean Museum website and type in reliquary casket St Thomas Beckett, and what you see is this beautiful box laid with copper, copper alloy, and it's a wooden box laid over that. And what it depicts is the scene at Canterbury Cathedral, where you have three of the knights depicted here, each armed, hacking down Thomas Becket before the altar and the hand of God reaching down to save this martyred um, archbishop. So this is really the undoing of Henry II because it strikes him as a Tyrannical king, and he's now very much on the defensive. And in 1174, Henry II has to do penance at Becket's tomb. But even before that, the damage has been done, and he becomes a, quite an unpopular king. Um, and there are all sorts of of pilgrimages to the shrine of Thomas Becket, and his relics assume a huge significance. And it's also thought that you'd go along and and worship at those relics for the power that they would have, but also that you would spit on the statues of the knights who killed him. And we can see this in, in Chaucer's Canterbury Tales, which is written about a group of pilgrims on their way to the shrine of St Thomas at Canterbury. Now, the response of the Pope is to excommunicate the knights who killed Becket. And in order to earn their forgiveness, they have to go on a crusade for 14 years. Um, Henry, in 1174, he walks barefoot to Canterbury Cathedral and allows the monks to whip him. He also has to give up his plans to reduce the power of the church. So in other words, he has failed in what he was attempting to do. And the next king to attempt to gain power over the church is Henry VIII in the early 16th century, which ends the country's ties with Rome and ushers in a Protestant or reformist reformation that sees the landscape of the Church of England introduced, the power of Rome relinquished, and an English monarch set up as the head of the church. So there we are, Sam, there's the significance. It is a clash between church and state.
0: It's fascinating. It's one of those great things where, where it starts off being a small story and then and then you realise just how important it is for understanding what's going on in the medieval period there. Uh, I think it's time for a little bit of a quiz. I've got some questions. Here Excellent. We go. Uh, question one. According to popular oral tradition, what did Henry II say about Thomas Becket when he was really cross with him?
1: Oh, that's a good one. Now, number two, who was Henry II's grandfather. You've got to be listening carefully for that one. Number 3. Um I
0: did mention that there are lots and lots of letters surviving from Thomas Becket and I actually gave you a specific number. It's surprisingly large. So how many surviving letters are there that Thomas Becket wrote or received during his archbishopric?
1: Now, number four, how many knights assassinated Thomas Beckett? And for a bonus point, on what date did they do it? And for another bonus point, where did it happen? <laughs>
0: a lot oh, of sorry, bonus points. Th- three-part two, <laughs> And another bonus point, <laughs> on five, sorry, question five, um, when Henry loses his I I read out a description of him doing some pretty crazy stuff. He took off his belt, and then he started to eat something. What was it that he started to eat?
1: Oh, that's a tricky one. Now, last but not least, um, how did Henry the Second atone for his sins in the aftermath of Becket's death?
0: Those are great. I want to listen to it all again so I can get those answers myself. Excellent. Um, j- James, do we have some homeschooling homework for people?
1: Oh, we do, Sam. We have a we have a very tricky task this week, uh, which is we want you to write a short piece outlining the basis of the conflict between Henry II and Thomas Becket. So, in other words, we want you to tell us about this conflict between the Church on one side and the state on the other. What are the pros and cons? What does each side want? And how do they come into conflict?
0: Well, best of luck with that, guys. I hope you enjoyed listening to it. Do please check out historiesoftheunexpected.com and do please find us on social media. I'm on Twitter at Dr Sam Willis. And
1: I'm on Twitter at James Daybell. And the podcast is on Twitter at UnexpectedPod.
0: We promise you we'll have more of these coming to you very, very soon. But do please check out everything else we've got on the back catalogue. We've got loads and loads of really fun stuff for you to get your ears stuck into. If you can stick ears into anything. That's it for now, guys. I hope you've enjoyed yourselves. Bye. Bye, guys.